Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Tommy, Ocean Chinook or Puget Sound Coho, what is your palate favorite? And you drop yeah. that kokanee on top of that barn door halibut's head, 67 feet of water, and he was not happy about that. Well, I don't know. What do you think? Boxers or briefs? Ooh, I'm going to have to go with a European cut speedo. Fantastic. Excellent choice. I yeah. love tuna. I do love tuna. Heck yeah! <laughs> hey, you know, I have a buddy who refers to Canadian geese as flying carp. Obviously, he's not cooking them. <laughs> he clearly, right? Oh, ocean snook. Seriously? Hands down. Really? Hands down. I don't fish for coho. Ah, good point. Hey, speaking of grind, can you tell the difference between ground deer and ground elk? Honestly, taste the difference. You know, Dwayne, we only get one chance to live this life, mm-hmm. and you will always regret the things that you don't do. So you know what I tell people? Buy the damn boat. Hey, you know, the facts are some days are just a grind. Welcome to Fish Hunt Northwest, the number one fishing and hunting talk show throughout the Pacific Northwest and beyond. Now here's your host, Dwayne England, and of course, the infamous Tommy Donlan. Hey, good evening and welcome to Fish Hunt Northwest. Dwayne England, Tommy Donlan. Hey, buddy. How you doing? Hey, I'm doing great, man. What a what a great week. Nice to see you back yeah. here. huh? Yeah, it's it's been awesome except for a... Pinched a nerve in my neck working out yesterday morning. Uh, you got that going on. So if I if I look at you like this mm-hmm. and then I look at the camera like this, it's you'll know what's going on. Just a pinched nerve. Yeah. You're not like stroking out on me. No. No. <laughs> look at no, all faces and drooping. So we're right. Good. Yeah. yeah. Smile for me, please. <laughs> Squeeze my fingers. Yeah. So, uh, anyway, hey, welcome to the show tonight. Uh, as I mentioned, we are here uh, live Thursday, 6 p.m. You are here to join us. We are coming to you from the Fish on Northwest Studios, located where, Tommy? Summit Lake. That's right. Beautiful Summit Lake. Yeah, man. How about the weather today? It's been phenomenal. Can we just get more of this? Uh, I'm ready for yeah. it. I'm ready for it. Going into this week, the weather was absolutely sideways, literally, with, yeah. you know, golf stone-sized freaking hail coming down at however many miles per hour. And right. I was like, is my truck going to end up dented? This is beyond, this yeah. is biblical almost yeah. in nature, right? Yeah, you lost power for a bit, too. Yeah, we did. Yeah, yeah typical out here in uh, in Summit Lake area. We got a lot of trees out yeah. here. So, uh, hopefully everybody weathered through the storm, and now we get to enjoy what it is out there that's happening the last couple days anyway and uh you know we're we're marching right on into spring here i'm pretty excited this mm-hmm. type of you said it man it's like you can smell it in the air right you can Spring's smell it popping, you can absolutely uh, smell it trees are blooming and we're off and going and uh boy lakes are opening soon and it's yeah. just it's that time man yeah feels good nice to get here um you know it is warming up, but I got to tell you, the other morning when JJ and I were out Springer fishing. Tiddly bit nipply. Uh, 29 degrees, 30 degrees. Oh, and yeah. then we had that just a nice driving, 10 sustained wind blowing right down yeah. river, uh, going with the outgoing uh, tide in the current, in the wind, all same direction, which is great when you're trolling, uh, but not so great when you're facing it, just mm-hmm. just beating you in the face all day. It was, it was cold for about... That's, that's part of the Springer program. Three hours. Yeah, yeah. If you're not miserable, you're not Springer fishing, right? Yeah. So anyway, by the way, JJ, fantastic, delicious. Thank you for the donation <laughs> for tonight. Tommy enjoyed it. Did you not? Yeah, no, it was phenomenal. And I'm, I'm glad, JJ, that you actually slowed your troll down a little bit enough to catch fish so <laughs> Got um, one. yeah it was good stuff good job um so hey want to remind everybody if you haven't done so yet make sure you jump on over to fishhuntnw.com it's 
fishhuntnw.com. That is our webpage. You're going to find on the front page there in FHN20, <clears throat> which is your button to push. That is your coupon code as well. It takes you right to Edge Rods. Edge Rods, now a contributing sponsor here and a, and a, and a partner at Fish Hunt Northwest. Um, we are proud as can be to be promoting Edge Rods for all that they stand for and um, what they create. So yes, through us and with them, you can go through our, through our uh, webpage, get to their webpage, everything you order online there, as you submit your coupon code FHN20, you are gonna save 20%, Tommy. Yeah, that's phenomenal. On yeah. every rod. Yeah. Every day. Yeah. It's like here to stay. You're getting 20% off just yeah. because you follow our show and Edge has partnered with us. So take advantage of that. It's uh, coming up to a serious fishing season with a lot of opportunity on both salt and fresh water. Yes. You're going to need new fishing rods. Might as well go to For Edge sure. and get them, right? For sure. Fantastic. Well, um, handful of things going on as of late. Uh, Thomas, as we know, Saturday. Wah, wah. Bum, bum, bum. So uh, Area 5 which was slated to be about an eight-week season. Yep, was, was supposed Thank to. There you, go. Yeah, there you go. We was had supposed to go to April 30th. Correct. Yeah. Now closing April 9th. Yeah. Um, which, you know, uh, WDFW has said, current catch totals in Marine Area 5 likely to exceed, likely to exceed preseason fishery regulation assessment model, known as the FRAM. Mm -hmm. We refer to that mm -hmm. regularly. And uh, in projected catch, high effort in high catch per angler have led to a higher than predicted harvest in the month of March. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I, I got frustration with that is because this is a loaf fishery. Yep. This is part of to. the list agreed to fisheries. And we have a season that is set. And nowhere on the table or in the information uh, prior to did I see anything that indicated uh, there's a quota-based fishery. Un right. Like our Area 9, Area 10. Right, which is different. Correct. Managed differently. Correct. So our blackmouth fishery in Area 10, for example, mm -hmm. it's a quota-based fishery. They actually let us fish for a couple sets of those three-day weekends, and they mm -hmm. shut us down to get us further into the season. Yep. To give us opportunity with a little nicer weather at quota-based fisheries, right? Right. There's also a an encounter rate associated with that quota-based fishery. Yep. Sublegal. We we kept throwing out the numbers of sublegal encounters versus mm -hmm. our retention of retainable hatchery marks like fish. Yep, correct. Okay? So when we're talking quota-based fisheries, there's numbers involved that we cannot exceed, and if, if we get close to those at a certain time frame, they're going to shut it down. Yep. And they did. Okay? This here was a set season. Yep. Okay? I can assure you, I've been in discussions that um, you hear terms like underperforming, overperforming, right? It's like, well, we know our co-managers um, have caught what they anticipated in their catch quota for this year in their, their matrix of their 50%, however you want to mm -hmm. pull those numbers out. But like their percentage of catch quota is projected to be X, Y, Z by this time in season. Um, Oh, looks like they've already hit that number and we're four weeks into it and they have four weeks to go. Yeah, they're not shutting it down. They're going to continue to fish. Yeah. Why, Tommy? Oh, because obviously the run is overperforming. Yep. There's an abundance of fish that we didn't count, didn't, didn't uh, factor in. It's like we've had, a, uh, we've had an amazing return this year and there just seems to be way more fish than we anticipated. So mm -hmm. the run is overperforming. Uh, they can go ahead and continue to fish because we don't fear that it's going to in, in, impact in any way, shape, or form the uh, end result of meeting escapement or whatever the need is. Right. Now we're talking blackmouth fishery in CQ. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
these are hatchery fish put in that area. Pretty much a high percentage of them maintain in that area. For the sole purpose of catching. For the sole purpose of catching. Yep. This is a hatchery program. These fish are brewed and held over up to a year in fresh water so that when they put them into the salt, they residualize in that region and they're just going to, for a high percentage of them, are just going to stay right there. Right. Okay. So how is it all of a sudden we're running out of fish? They're, now mm -hmm. we're going to, what, we're encountering migratory fish and we're not allowed to do that? Or how, how does that work as we enter into the beginning of April here? Right. Well, it's just kind of a situation where you get to make up the rules as you go. I don't know what you know. the answer is. Yeah. I, uh, I, was, I was assured we had a, a two-month season. So this closure by, okay, higher than anticipated effort, I get that. Why? Yep. We don't have a whole lot else to do. Mm -hmm. Everything else is shut down. Right. People pay a lot of money for boats, electronics, and downriggers, and gear, and we support the economy, the, the and, we economy want to use them. and we yep. want to use them, and we want to go support the economy more by staying at hotels and, and right. frequenting the restaurants and spending the money, a high amount of money, big percentage of money on fuel right now, Yeah. right? Mm -hmm. The state continues to receive tax on that. Why? Because we have highest taxes in the nation on fuel, mm -hmm. for God's sakes. Mm -hmm. So we're willing to do all that, and we have a season that's said, and yet they, they want to shut it down because of our encounter rate and our success yeah. is too high. Right. I, I don't get it. I'm going to hope to get somebody on the phone next week to kind of walk us through this. Um, yeah, we can and, only hope. And a few other things. Um, yeah. I mean, there's still opportunity out of, uh, you know, out of CQ. Obviously, Area 4 is open for bottom fish. True. Um, you know, Area 5 will be opening uh, May 5th for halibut. Yep. Um, also May 1st for lingcod. Correct. And, and some rockfish. <laughs> but, you know, if I'm bottom fishing out of CQ, I'm definitely going to be running over to Area 4. Um, with, you know, better limits. You can have two link caught over there versus right, one. Right, um, Better rockfish limit, um, more abundance of them anyway. So, yeah, Halbert's, you know, Halbert is just around the corner, mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. May 5th, you know, in, in the ocean. So yep. we're less than a month away there. We had our we had our eastern uh, straight Puget Sound opener today. You're right. And guys are getting them, man. There's yeah. a lot of halibut is in there the really? docks. Yeah, there is. I did there not. Is. Of course, you'd follow that much more than I. I was a little busy, you know, doing other yeah. things. But, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, you were. You said the reports were, um, uh, well, yeah, it was, it was yep. a pretty success. Of course, the weather definitely helped. The weather definitely helped. Right. And I mean, I think, you know, what also helps is that, you know, Ron Garner, Puget Sound Anglers, they've worked really, really hard to get that Eastern Strait, Puget Sound yep. opened up in early April. Yes. And those fish are in that Eastern end of the Strait um, now, right? Yeah. And so um, way better opportunity for anglers to go out and, and get those fish. Good point. Um, and guys are capitalizing on now it. Now that goes and through so, May 21st, you said? It does, it does. Yeah. There's a series of dates. It basically is gonna keep going until you know the quota's caught. Right. But, but what I would suggest people do is don't, don't wait until May. Yep. Um, to go, right? right? Go now, right? The earlier you go, the better, because those fish are going to start migrating west out of that eastern strait, mm. um, and those areas are going to get picked over. And I haven't taken a look at the calendar to see when mm -hmm. the tribal openers mm -hmm. are, but you definitely want to hit it in advance of those as well. Yeah, good point. But uh, we do have three days a week through that uh, the initial season, this initial mm -hmm. opener at Puget Sound in the Straits. Uh, and you're right, um, folks did take advantage of that today. Good weather window to get out and successful outing, to say the least. I'm curious to see what the biggest one coming out of there today or the next couple of days. We've got the tournament, we've got the, the Halibut right. Derby this weekend. That's right. Eighth uh, and ninth. Um, got two days to fish that through uh, Fish Northwest. They got to put on a great program, second annual. Mm -hmm. And hopefully participation's high. 
Yeah. You know, um, looks like we got some weather coming in on the weekend, if I remember right. But uh, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, you know, good good for everyone getting out there and take full advantage of it. And let's uh, let's get some halibut on the deck for for, for sure, for, for sure. sure. Yeah. You know, and I think we had a question um, about where would I go in area nine or ten, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. And mm-hmm. and I would say, I mean, obviously, if you can make it to the banks in area six, that that's going to be your like priority. But if you are um, kind of limited to, you know, stopping around the Port Townsend area and south, I mean, I would focus my effort primarily in uh, Admiralty Bay mm-hmm. and maybe Mutiny Bay. I want to be as close to Area 6 as possible. Right. Um, there has been traditionally some really big halibut come out of that Admiralty Bay area, mm-hmm. and there's some pretty vicious drop-offs in there as well. Yeah. So that's where, if I'm stuck in Area 9, that's where I'm going to be focusing my energy is kind of in that zone. But preference would definitely be to go around the corner and into the street. That's a good point. Um, so some other things going on. Hey, you'd put a post out here yesterday or day before. Yeah. You kind of leaned on, you know, and this is why we should be seven days a week at Westport, two fish limit when appropriate. That's right. I want to talk a little bit about what does that look like and why are we not doing that and what, what statistical data is there that supports seven days a week in Westport? Yeah, so Chinook. let's, let's uh, throw up that uh, graphic there, Jordan, and, mm-hmm. you know, and it's kind of an eye chart, but effectively what you're looking at here is you've got um, basically the catch results on Schnook um, for the Schnook fishery. And traditionally, um, and we fight the battle every year, but this has been a five-day-a-week fishery, and you only get one of those days on the weekend. Um, and as you can see, that leads to a complete um, underperformance of catching um, on the sport fishing side. And so you look at some of those numbers, and it's like last last summer, and we even had a couple weeks where we had uh, two Chinook um, limits per person, and we still only caught 55% of the quota. That's a very good point. And so yeah. it's it's unfortunate that you know, we have this, we have this state and what it comes down to is the charter boat association in Westport pushes so hard, um, to try to make sure that their season lasts the whole summer, um, that they promote this five day a week season, knowing that the majority of the population that has a private boat can't go fishing. Um, they only get one day on one weekend Mm -hmm. and it's one schnook, right? So at best you got the, um, the working guy or gal, they come out for the weekend, but they can only fish one day right. uh, on the Chinook fishery. Right. Um, they catch their one Chinook and they go home and that's it. They can't stay for Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but the Charter Boat Association can can operate at will um, and hold those fish hostage. And so, you know, that's, that's the reason. Now, it's really sad because if you put this into perspective, you think about how much quota is left on the table. Uh-huh. And then you look at some of the problems that we're having in river where... Um, you know, these hatchery fish are making it all the way back to the spawning beds. And then we get in trouble because we have too many hatchery fish on the beds. Mm-hmm. And then they say, well, you guys aren't effective in catching them. Right. We're going to have to reduce the hatchery count. And that's exactly what just happened. We just lost 4.8 million um, hatchery fish that would go into the system this year. Lower Columbia. In the lower Columbia, which yes. is the fish that we're catching out off of Westport. Correct. Um, and so we're already in this game, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so what we really need to do here is start, we'll start with one schnook um, per person per day, but it needs to be seven days a week. Sure. Okay. And then at some point in time, it should go to two fish a day, especially mm-hmm. with the quota that we've been given. And there's really, even, even if you were to say seven days a week, one schnook per person per day, you're not going to eat that quota. We're still not going to get to you're the, not gonna, the final end of it. No, no. you won't. You won't. 
It it it, uh, it seems to be as of late more than I've heard recently that uh, or in the past a a reoccurring theme. One, we got to be cognizant of the fact we have too many hatchery fish hitting the gravel. Mm-hmm. And then I I put that challenge up against well, when's the last time I've heard serious discussions in opening up additional bag limits for recreational opportunity, albeit in the ocean, albeit in the uh, main stem. Uh, fisheries and or the, uh, the the terminal tributaries, but you know if if it's been recognized as an issue on certain fisheries, and this doesn't go across the board for all, but at times, if we have too many fish hitting the gravel, we have we have things in place that are not being put in play that could help assist with that. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And you and I were talking before dinner. It's like, gosh, remember back when we had so many of these fisheries that had a, a two bag limit indoor, a bonus fish attached to it, a couple Chinook and mm-hmm. you can get a coho or you can go Chinook and two coho or whatever those fisheries would would support. But this year is going to be a classic example that we seriously and we'll get into a little bit later, but we got some serious numbers coming back yeah. and how they're going to dissect these runs and give. <laughs> recreational opportunity where it's warranted mm-hmm. and what types of uh, bag limits they're going to uh, assign to those is is where I'm kind of you know waiting to see how this all pans out right. because what I certainly don't want to do is get through this very um, robust return of both wild and hatchery fish in some regards yeah. and then we roll into this next season mm-hmm. and they're looking back at data <laughs> and, and what it truly did as it unfolded and they simply apply the well we had way too many fish hit the gravel again, so mm-hmm. we have to uh, we have to stop producing so many hatchery fish. Right. Um, because you know, at times we're t- there, not we. There they are talking about uh, both sides of their mouths. We're talking in one conversation in one room. Hey, we got to really boost these numbers of Chinook uh, hatchery produced Chinook uh, to save these orcas. Right. And in the other room, they're going, but should we do anything about? The predation issue because if we're dumping all these fish into the waters and we're just feeding the predator machine we're just truly feeding the predator machine mm-hmm. and do the orcas truly win at the end of that and there's no answer out of that room but then we go to this room and they go right. i understand down there at room a they want to produce more fish but we got far too many hitting the gravel so we got to produce less fish but nobody's in room d to say maybe we should think about giving these guys more opportunity when it's warranted right you know, and or bag limits, exercise uh, uh, lucrative bag limits at times. I just don't hear those discussions happening. Maybe right. I'm missing the conversation, but mm-hmm. as of late, I haven't heard. Well, we're definitely having this conversation right now, the North Falcon meetings around Westport mm-hmm. um, and going to seven days a week. And uh, at some point, right, there's there's a point in time during that season where yes. it needs to go to two kings a day. Yep. Um, and the other thing that I'll say is that you know, just keep in mind, the Westport Charter Boat Association does not represent all charter boats, okay? Right. So um, there's actually a, a good majority of charter boats that believe it should be seven days a week and everybody should get their pick. So, you know, something to keep in mind, don't don't go out and, and judge, um, you know, any given charter boat until you really know where they stand in the equation. Yeah. So, so kind of keep that in mind, too. Um, in fact, pretty much predominantly all of the express style charters, the 30 foot, you know, mm-hmm. 33 foot and under, um, they're all four, seven days a week. So, yeah. um, you know, keep that in mind. I think it's, it really comes into play when you've got, you know, a lot of those larger boats, the deltas that are having trouble, you know, putting 10 anglers on schnook, right? Right. You know, the coho, they're snapping up, right? They're eating, they're eating the cut plugs like crazy. Yep. yep. Um, but you have a bigger problem getting into those schnook and kind of getting them maintained. So, yeah. Um, but even even in the big boat charter fleet, they're not all aligned, right? Yep. And so, um, really, what I would ask is if you're if you're part of that, 
um, charter boat association and you believe that you know it should be fair and equal and everybody should get their pick seven days a week you need to speak up and say something to the charter boat association so they know how you feel sure yeah if, you, if you'd go on without saying uh where you stand on it you're right get your voice involved and right nobody listens and you know change does not come about so they got to hear from us they got to hear it from the masses and and uh, this is a great avenue to make that happen so uh valid points there buddy absolutely uh okay running down the show we got a lot of good information to get through tonight tommy as we usually do uh our buddy eric broughton whom jordan and i spent a couple days with last year over on the east side bagged a couple turkeys uh Two, two turkey bag limit, by the way, in that regard. Mm-hmm. So um, Eric Broughton, admin on Washington State Wild Turkey Hunting Club on Facebook. If you're not a member of that club and you want to hunt turkeys, just simply give them a, give them a little uh, look and invite and see if they'll add you to the group. But uh, getting you ready for spring turkey opener, you have a week or so to prepare. Uh, and what you need to know, Eric's going to get you dialed, so stick around for that. Recipe of the week, Tommy, we're bringing one back. This is a good one. Out of all those we did last time, this pheasant schnitzel was probably one of my favorite. It's amazing, and the recipe that will also work great with your wild turkey, so keep that in mind. Mm-hmm. Um, Captain Nick Clayton, first time to the show, but no stranger to the industry. All rivers and saltwater charters, one of the captains out there running for Coleman. Uh, Ocean bottom fish in Lincoln. How good is it right now? What to expect as the season moves forward? And of course, close out the show. We got some uh, Inslee's budget cuts and vetoes out of some of the things that pertain to our our realm. Some of the things that we discussed in the past several weeks going into the budget. Did he actually... Uh, hit the veto stamp on some of those, and if so, which ones? And some Grays Harbor Coho numbers. Holy smokes. But unfortunately, wah, wah. Don't hold your breath. <laughs> it's going to be up yeah. to the commission. <laughs> and we're going to get into that because this one here is like, uh, you know, two, <laughs> two, uh, two ships colliding. Mm-hmm. I, I am very curious to see where this is going to go. You're going to want to stick around for a little insight on that one because we have some amazing numbers coming back. But what does it all mean if we can't have access to them? So, all right, uh, don't go anywhere. We're going to jump out for a couple-minute quick break. Come back. We're talking turkey here on Fish on Northwest. We're going to get Eric Broughton on the phone. Get you dialed in, ready for the opener coming up on the 15th right here, Fish on Northwest. Sportco, an outdoor emporium, is the largest local outfitter in the Northwest since 1975, providing thousands of people affordable outdoor gear. Make your next outdoor adventure more affordable by shopping at our warehouse-style pricing. We are a local Scotty dealer, offering sales, service, and repair. Located in Fife and Seattle, Come visit us today. The outdoors await you. It's easier than ever to browse homes and connect with an agent on the go with Better Homes and Gardens Real Estate's mobile app. With the app, your home search is synced across all of your devices, so you can pick up your home search anytime, anywhere. Take full advantage of an enriched, mobile-optimized map search experience. Use location services to quickly find homes near you that match your search criteria. Draw your own map boundaries to find homes in a specific area, and apply layers to view school districts, neighborhoods, zip codes, and more. The app's user-friendly design makes it easier than ever to find a home you'll love. Narrow down your search results, save your search criteria, and save your favorite homes. You can browse your saved homes in a list view that puts photos and key details, like price and square footage, right at your fingertips or check out your saved homes displayed on the map. 
Welcome back, Fish Hunt Northwest. Wayne England, Tommy Donlin, and we are here in studio, buddy, going to talk a little turkey. Yeah. It's about that time of year. You know, the youth opener was here this last week on the 1st uh, through the 7th. And did not seen. disappoint. Did not disappoint. First couple days might have been a little rough, but we're going to let our next guest in line here, Mr. Eric Broughton himself uh, with Washington State Wild Turkey Hunting Club, give us all the details on that. How you doing, buddy? Good. How are you guys? Hey, we're good. We're good. Uh, ready to start talking right turkey. On. I mean, it's uh, it's getting about that time. I know you've been out boots on the ground taking some youths out. and um, the, But the general season opener, and now that we're getting kind of through the first part of this and the youth season, uh, kind of recognized from the first till today, the 7th, now we're focused on that general season opener, and it's uh, the 15th through the 31st, isn't it? Right. 15th of April to May 31st, and... Uh... It'll be here before you know it, uh, but uh, yeah, the weather's shaping up good. Uh, like you said, we had an incredible youth season. I think on our uh, club page we had uh, right around fifty birds. Five zero members. Yeah, wow. five zero. Oh five. wow, that's uh, that's incredible amount of turkeys at the youth. And this is the first year of the seven day youth season, which allowed. Uh, a lot of flexibility for families during the spring break versus the two day that was last year. So right. uh, I think it was a, a really a positive switch for a lot of families. They were able to get their kids out and, and enjoy the, you know, outside and getting the chasing the turkeys out over here and, and uh, just lots of great pictures, lots of good memories. And uh, on our hunt, we had, we had a fantastic time teaching the uh, kids about turkey hunting and, and mm. uh, we actually, uh, it was a it was a tougher hunt, you know. I think uh, uh, you guys saw my stuffer decoy I, I made, but uh, that thing was uh, brought them in. You know, I think uh, that was the key is having something, you know, a good decoy out there. But you know, we're going into opener. Uh, I think with uh, a lot of great opportunities, lots of birds still. Uh, we have some cams up up north on some private land, and we have some pretty decent flocks still. Uh, a lot of the snow is melting. Uh, still have some snow in some shady spots because mm-hmm. we had quite mm-hmm. a bit of snow mm-hmm. up north. But uh, we're seeing a lot of good activity, uh, a lot of goblin. Uh, we did a poll, uh, kind of a virtual uh, scouting tool that we tried last year. Right. Uh, put put that out online, and uh, it looks just like I thought. You know, a lot of our northern counties are kind of still winter flocked up and lots of uh, hens and toms together. Down the blues and the Klickitat, and probably, you know, some of those areas, you know, Yakima, you're probably seeing a little bit uh, of the breakup occurring already. You know, a lot of the toms are have separated some hens, and they got them, you know, kind of uh, out on their own. So uh, I think down there it's probably a, probably a better chance of getting some active, you know, calling and, you know, response times and, you know, getting some birds coming in. <laughs> And uh, up north, you might have to have to call in the whole group. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> so we've had some pretty hellacious weather over here, um, Eric. I mean, it was raining cats and dogs. We had hail. It was yeah, hail Cold. blowing. Yeah, um, mass psychosis among other things. <laughs> right. Um, what, what you know when you talk about turkey hunting? I mean, I know I hunt that late um, whitetail buck hunt over there. Um, yeah. And so I know when I get that, you know, either a snow or a good cold weather snap, that usually helps with that rut kicking in and getting those bucks really moving around. So for spring turkey, did you guys see any of that weather? And then can you talk to us about how does the weather pattern affect turkey behavior? 
Yeah, we get April, the first two weeks of April, you know, for the season, the 15th through the 30th, you never know what you're going to get over here in eastern Washington. Now, down the Blues and the Click at that, it might be a little bit different, but even down there they have some – sometimes you'll get a weird snow squall. I was just looking at the weather, and I think we're getting rain on the 13th uh, over here, and then it's going to break up. But, yeah, we get lots of different uh, – you know, I've had the hail, I've had the snow, you wake up to snow in camp, you know, and yeah, you kind of just roll with it. You know, I think the the worst part is uh, in eastern Washington is, is probably wind. We have those really, you know, those fronts that come in, the cold fronts, and they bring the wind with them. And, and that really is hard to call, you know, like last week when we were out with the youth guys, we were using our box calls, you know, to really crank that mm. sound just to so that the birds would hear you. So, uh, but it can shut it can shut down the activity for sure. You know, when you get those cold fronts. Uh, um, now the now the Merriams, you know, they're used to all that. You know, I mean, so I, you know, I don't uh, not go out and hunt. You know, I don't stay at, stay back at the tent or anything. I go out and, you know, if it's raining, I might you know find a tree or something. But uh, you know, I still you know I only have so much time to hunt, so I I try to take advantage of it. But, yeah, uh, that's, yeah. that's something Dwayne would do. I know. I know you wouldn't do that, Eric. What's that? Stay out. <laughs> stay, stay it's raining. Staying yeah. home. <laughs> yeah. Fair weather to a hunter. Absolutely. Uh, hey, let's uh, let's talk a little bit about you know the, the time you've had out now this last week or so, um, getting involved with this youth hunt and just you know boots on the ground and out there uh, observing the bird activity and behavior. So let's say I didn't get out this first week, but I plan to hunt. Uh, at the opener or sometime in the near future. If, if I come over in this next week and I'm locating birds and observing activity and whatnot, but I don't hunt for, say, another three weeks, is that, uh, it, can it be a completely different world by then? You know, is, is, is uh, the information I'm gathering uh, yeah. early on, is right. that going to be beneficial later for me when I get out to actually hunt? Yes, yeah, totally. Uh, depending on where you're at, you know, I mean, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of our, you know, as soon as these hens start to break up with the toms, you know, they'll start start to find nesting sites, and then they'll mm-hmm. start dropping eggs. And uh, you know, they spend about two weeks, you know, laying eggs. And so once they once they go into incubation mode, which puts you at that three week period and beyond, you know, you're you have less hens coming to the roost. You have more available toms. You know, there's a lot of things that can change just with waiting till May. A lot of a lot of guys I know love to hunt may because because there's not that many hens available uh that time of year so yeah don't get frustrated if you don't if you don't see you know get the reaction you're hoping when you're out hunting the first week or so if you're out and about and it it kind of goes south on you but uh you know look forward to may because may is actually uh probably a better time um, I've, I've actually seen some hunting right up, uh, where we had early springs years where we had really, uh, light winters. We had early springs though. So let's say March was pretty warm and then going into early April is warm. You know, some of those hens would, we are, I counted, uh, one year I ran, I, I had a nest up in Stevens County and it was May 1st and she already had, um, you know, her 14 eggs, I counted the eggs oh, wow. in there. So that, so that tells me even up by Canada, they started <laughs> nesting early. No so, kidding. you know, yeah. so even, even by the, the 31st, cause it's 28 days to incubate those eggs. So, mm. 
even by the end, you know, you're just going to have a lot of opportunities to hunt those toms. Those toms will become more available later in the season. So right. don't don't fret. It'll be it'll be okay. <laughs> That's good to know. I mean, so when you're yeah. when you're scouting um, and you're not seeing birds, um, I know this is not your case because I know you're finding birds. But if you're not seeing them where you usually would, or you're not hearing them, um, what's your next step on the scouting program? Do you? Do you risk a call? Are you worried about calling too early and then them not responding and you're kind of bothering those birds, maybe pushing them out of an area where they would stay otherwise? And how do you react to that situation? Yeah, I think it, it's more the type of property you hunt. So, like, if you hunt public land along with other hunters and there's those turkeys are hearing calls every day, you know, I mean, you might show up on a weekend, you know, and it's already been hunted that week, you know mm-hmm. I mean? So it could be a different, different scenario, right? But if you're on, like, private land or maybe – up in the public forest where there's no, you know, not a lot of guys like to hike in or something, it could be uh, a way different, you know, scenario. So, you know, what I like to do is, uh, you know, try to find, I just cover lots of ground, you know, A, to find a bird. But, you know, this last week when we were with the kids, we weren't hearing any gobbling, but we knew that there was birds around just by the sign. Mm -hmm. And we also had, we also had a visual uh, by the landowner. So we knew that birds were in the area. So, what we did is we decided to use our decoys and we sat in the blind and we called, you know, every once in a while and just kept, you know, the talking and those birds just showed up and they were strutting in the decoys. So, mm. you know, a lot of times they'll come in silent. So just oh. because you're calling and they're not answering doesn't mean that your hunt's a bust. I mean, I would, I would give it at least 20 minutes per setup, you know, just to make sure that nothing can hear you and, and move on, you know, to another area. So. Last, good advice. Yeah, last year when we were hunting in May, uh, weather was, you know, decently warm and uh, a lot of birds, a lot of activity. We're driving along the road and you just see toms out there strutting around, following these hens. And um, then we get into certain areas now. You were just belting out this locator call, right? And um, I'll talk a little bit about that, that woodpecker call you use, but your, uh, your first first thing out of the box or out of the truck is uh, this locator call now is that something you're doing from you know day one early spring get out there and start locating birds by utilizing a locator call or when is it applicable to use a call that's that loud and uh, <laughs> uh, very attention drawing yeah I usually like to use that just kind of when I'm running and gunning right so um, I, I don't I know that um, the habitat looks right that there probably should be birds here but it just kind of gives you that shortcut to see okay yeah he's over there or hey there's nothing here let's move on so you know when I start blowing on the I like that high pitch uh, of the woodpecker you know you can you can do the the goose call or the you know uh, the crow call um, but there you know there's lots of different variations you know early on you know, 20 years ago, you know, the only thing they sold was crow calls and owl calls. And Mm -hmm. so everybody out there had, you know, a crow call and, you know, and so the birds, you know, not that you couldn't get them to to gobble, but you knew, you know, that uh, there wasn't that many crows around. So, I mean, it's, uh, (laughs) it's just one of those things, you know, that uh, I I like to not show all my cards, right? I don't, you know, if I'm, if I'm in the hunt and I'm in the heat of the moment, I'll use a, a, a turkey call. Like if I know there's a bird there especially after I've located them with the woodpecker. But, you know, I just, I like to use the woodpecker just not to show my cards. Sure. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so once you get on the birds, right, you know you're you're in striking distance, so to speak. And let's say you're you're not in the blind. You're outside the blind. You're doing a spot and stock. What's your approach to that spot and stock? And what's going through your mind? How do you set up for success? 
there was a couple of hunts that uh, your scenario reminds me of. One was a, a roosting, you know, area that I knew that these birds pitched down into this field corner. And uh, I, I, I mean, in my scouting, I watched them, you know, work through this one uh, farm gate, you know. So, you know, if you, if you can scout and learn where those, you know, advantage points are, those pinch points are, you know, and set up in those areas. But if I'm just running and gunning, I usually, if I can get that bird to gobble, and he knows where I'm at. I don't. I don't necessarily just keep calling. I might just, you know, hang up and just call that bird to me. A lot of guys push it too much. They'll mm-hmm. actually uh, kind of ruin the hunt because those turkeys can see uh, really well, and and so any mo- type of movement. So if unless you don't have cover to get closer, um, you know, even even with archery, you know, you want it. You want to kind of uh, hang in close to cover and try to call those birds to you. So, you know, the stalking, the, the stalk, uh, stalking and spotting, you know, turkeys like in Lincoln County where we have a lot of sagebrush mixed with pines, um, you don't have a lot of habitat to do a lot of sneaking. But uh, in some cases you can get close and then maybe try to get set up so that they hear you. But uh, I, try to, I try to let my calls do the, the work for me, and uh, it's a little bit safer that way, um, especially if you're uh, trying to get in close uh just to make that that kill you know right and i know i know people are thinking like well what what's close and i know it's terrain dependent but can you talk about you know in that situation in kind of those loose pines um you know are you are you stopping 50 yards away is it 100 yards away is it 20 yards away like can you give a rough idea like how far are you calling these toms in yeah so if if i do my woodpecker and i hear a bird gobble and let's say he's 100 yards away and I feel like I can move up closer and I can get closer and get set up. And, and even like you, in a lot of cases, I won't even put a decoy out because it's better for them to search you out in that scenario. Mm. Um, so I might just sit down and then just start calling. And if he gobbles right back at me, then I might cut him off and yelp again. And if he gobbles, I, then I just shut up. I let him come to me mm. now. Now, a lot of cases, you know, you know, I played football, so I know my yardages, but I kind of try to figure that out, you know, as I get closer, you know, as far as where my shot distance is going to be with my weapon. So if I'm using a bow and I need to get closer, then I'm probably going to set up a little bit closer and try to get get him to come into that uh, range that I'm, I'm good at. So, mm-hmm. uh, and, and, it, and if I'm using an arch, you know, if I'm archery hunting, like uh, some of my buddies like to do that decoys becomes even more important because you can set that up before you even start calling and, and make sure that that decoys at the right yardage so that when he does come in, you know, he's right in your wheelhouse. So, um, yeah, like it. Uh, it all depends on the scenario. So yeah. I, I like mm-hmm. to set my decoys right where, like these kids last week, we had the decoys right out there where we knew that their guns shot the best. So we put them out at 25 yards, and we knew that, you know, uh, if the turkeys were between there and us, that they, they should have no problem uh, hitting those birds. So. Yeah, sounds good. Awesome. Uh, hey, before we get out of here, uh, you had mentioned yeah. the start. You got 50 birds in the youth hunt this year, which is absolutely exceptional. Um and over there with you last year, we were talking about the numbers of birds, good, good, a high percentage of toms strutting around almost every corner it seemed we turned. We had, we had active birds. Um, and we kind of, you know, put that on the fact that the season before with COVID and everything, the, um, the amount of folks who were actually out hunting, if at all, with the late seasons and everything, it just didn't really have a huge impact. So 
Last year, the numbers were outstanding. Going into this season, what are your thoughts? What are you seeing? I'm thinking that the excitement's still there. I think we're going to see a lot of people out and about, you know, that first yeah. week. I think, uh, you know, it's just the uh, the enthusiasm with getting out in the field last year, I think it's going to just – if I can just gauge it by the youth season that we mm-hmm. just had, you know, mm-hmm. which ends tonight. I mean, I had a guy stop by my, my work, and he actually was like, hey, I know youth season's, you know, you know this area? And I, he goes, I stopped there, and I – got a bird to go i'm gonna take my daughter in there tonight and i'm like yeah go for it you got you know the the end of the day he was all he was all excited getting off work early to go get his kid so they could try to get a bird today so you know there's more enthusiasm this year because Mm -hmm. of the seven day youth season but also just in general so i think uh, i'm looking forward to having a a good turkey season but i think you're going to see a lot of people out supporting the small communities that are mm-hmm. up there that, you know, are welcoming hunters, the businesses. I think that's, it's going to be huge. So yeah. is there enough birds to support the increase in activity? Oh yeah. Yeah. Plenty of birds. Just from, just from what I'm seeing right. uh, and what my buddies are seeing. Um, and you know, if it wasn't for private land and you, we probably wouldn't have, you know, uh, mm-hmm. a lot of birds, sure. you know, I mean, we have that ability to, you know, balance, you know, the, the no hunting areas, you know, kind of help out the hunting areas because right. of the private land out right. there. So I think that's, that's always going to be a, a positive thing in Eastern Washington is having that, those birds having that private property to kind of grow those populations. Right. And yeah. So it's Good always going to be there. I, I just got to yeah. know one last question. Do, do we have the best Turkey hunting in the United States in Eastern Washington? <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, right now, um, there's a lot of people, uh, there's a lot of states struggling with, uh, turkey populations, especially down South. There's a lot of, uh, brood rearing habitat issues. There's a lot of things that are going on that they think are attributed to their low turkey numbers. Mm. And so we have a really well, really good. And I think one of the, one of the things that, uh, is driving that is, is we still have growing populations. I don't think the carrying capacity has reached, uh, you know, the, I think certain counties like Spokane County, uh, because of the urbanization of that County, you know, and lots of, uh, I think the, the carrying capacity is right there, but areas like Stevens County, which have, you know, you, not only do you have the land base, but you also have elevation, right? So yes. you have yeah. a lot more habitat out there that is being filled with turkeys, you know, and then, you know, we have a lot of predators that eat turkeys. So, you know, it's not, it's not that we have high population and I mean, cougars probably eat a lot of turkeys as well as deer and elk and everything else. So, right. you know, I mean, I, I think that we have plenty of turkeys. I think that uh, we have the opportunities there. And I know that a lot of non-residents come to our state just to get that Merriam yeah. for their slam right. or, you know, there's a, there's a new one that is a, it's a national slam where they're, where hunters are trying to get a bird in every state. Oh, and Washington is on that list. I had guys calling me wanting to know where to go to get their Merriam, and they're actually flying into Spokane, sleeping in a Walmart parking lot. They're shooting YouTube <laughs> videos, you can, and they're yeah. actually getting their groceries and their tags, and they're running out to a piece of public land using Onyx. They're killing their Merriam. They're you know putting all that stuff in a box and going down to Oregon. I mean, it's just crazy. You know, yeah, watching so many stuff. videos online. So <laughs> yeah, that's good. Right on. Yeah, I like to hear that. There's a lot. There's 
So. Well, good stuff. Uh, always appreciate you taking the time, Eric. So knowledgeable, and uh, you get people excited to uh, start taking a look at uh, getting involved with turkey hunting. They can find out a whole lot of information if they simply <laughs> join you on uh, Facebook, right? Uh, put up a put up a request to become a member at the uh, Washington State Wild Turkey Hunting Club, and um, you know, lots of great information you guys are putting up there. It's uh, helped me out a ton. It's helped a lot of other people. So I appreciate all the work you're doing and the encouragement you bring. Uh, to get folks enticed into Turkey. So I uh, look forward to seeing you in a couple of weeks, man. It's going to be great. Right on, guys. You guys have a good night. Yep, you will too. Do. Take care, buddy. See ya. All right. Bye-bye. Eric Broughton, the turkey whisperer. Phenomenal, man. <laughs> yeah. He really gets uh, he really gets excited about turkey hunting. I mean, I, I mean, I mean he's I got can... turkeys around his place for crying out loud. I know. Right? I mean, I can, see, I, I can see how it's addicting and why it's addicting. I mean, it's basically... You know, big big game hunting for birds. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's ba- that's basically it, it's right? Miniature elk hunting. Um, that's yeah, why Phelps gets so geeked out about it because he feels like he's warming up for elk season. You know, right. and it's the same type of process. You're spotting stock, you get you know, settled in. You know, get uh, get there secluded in an area, good coverage, and mm-hmm. call them in and watch some birds come strutting in and stuff. It's yeah, it's a whole uh, it's a whole deal, man. It's a lot of fun. And uh, by the way, they taste fantastic. Yeah. And, and we do have high population of turkeys. We really do. It's unreal. Yeah. yeah, I should really try for the uh, the state of Washington State Grand Slam, you know, and get the two yeah. birds over on the west side, yeah. or east side and one over here. But uh, maybe, maybe that'll happen. Going to jump out for a quick break, Tommy, and come back. First-time guest, Captain Nick Clayton with mm-hmm. All River Saltwater Charters. You and I have a number of questions for him on this bottom fishery out in our ocean, Westport area, and uh, what to look forward to as we get into that deep water opportunity mm-hmm. coming up not too far in the near future. Don't go anywhere. Jump out for a couple minutes. Be back right here in studio, Fish on Northwest. A Northwest favorite for almost 40 years, Arima boats are manufactured with pride right here in Bremerton, Washington. Arima Boats offers all of our boats with Honda outboard packages so that you can take full advantage of the reliability and five-year top-to-prop warranty from your Honda outboard. With literally thousands of Arima boats on the water throughout the Pacific Northwest, Arima boats are a proven hull design that offers incredible fuel economy and all of the amenities that a serious angler is looking for. All Arima boats are built without any structural wood materials. That is why we back our boats with a lifetime warranty. All of our Arima boats are designed to maximize deck space while also providing ample seating. Contact us today at Arima Boats for all your boating needs and let us help you get out on the water. Today, the need for quality private security services is at an all-time high. Contract Security Service provides day-to-day peace of mind as they protect people and property. Here at Phoenix, we provide service for multiple state and federal contracts with services ranging from uniform, patrol, alarm monitoring, canine detection, executive protection, as well as investigative work. Phoenix client management models are built on understanding our client's security needs and responding with a tailored program that is best fit for them. Phoenix provides excellent customer service through well-trained, highly motivated security professionals. Recruiting highly qualified officers is the first step in building a strong team. Currently, we are comprised of 70% prior law enforcement and military veterans. If you are prior military or law enforcement, go to www.phoenixprotectivecorps.com and apply today. 
Hey, welcome back, Fish Hunt Northwest. Tommy, uh, next guest, first time on the show. That's right, Mr. No, Mr. Nick Clayton. No, no stranger to the seas, however, right? Oh, absolutely Has not. Been, been with Coleman for quite a while. Nick Clayton, Captain All Rivers Saltwater Charters. How are you doing tonight, bud? I'm doing great. How are you guys doing? Hey, we're doing good. Glad you could take some time and join us here. Tommy and I have been kind of itching to get somebody on to talk, start talking about some ocean opportunity on bottom fish and lingcod and whatnot. So um, you're off and, uh, off and running when the weather's permitted. How's it, uh, how's it started off so far? Uh, it's been it's been good. Uh, you mentioned the weather. I tell you, man, we we've had some brutal weather. Uh, I think it opened up on what March twelfth this year, and uh, we've only done you know a handful of trips or so. We've had to cancel a lot of trips. Yeah. Uh, the the weather just you know, and typically in March that's fairly normal. Uh, we're hoping you know a lot of times in April it starts to. You usually get a pretty good window in April. It seems where the weather gets pretty nice. So hopefully here within the next week we'll see that. Um, but yeah, it's when we've been getting out though, uh, it's been, it's been good, good, solid fishing. And when you, um, when you have been able to get out Nick, has it been comparable to what you've seen in years past? How is the fishing? Yeah, I would say it hasn't, you know, in my time fishing Westport, it hasn't varied a whole heck of a lot. Um, especially, especially the lingcod, you know, I feel like the lingcod fishery is one that seems to be pretty well managed and seems pretty consistent. Um, at least, at least at Westport, you know, I used to fish Nia in the Straits and in the Sound and stuff. I haven't in a number of years, but, uh, Westport, it, it stays pretty consistent, um, you know, last year, I think last year, early season, say April, was probably the best lingcod fishing I've seen down there. I'm not entirely sure why. It's mm-hmm. just in terms of quality of fishing and quality of fish, especially for the, the shallower, you know, our standard kind of inshore trips. Um, but no, I, I, I wouldn't say it's it's a, a way better, and it's certainly no worse. It just seems consistent. Well, hey, one one thing that is uh, synonymous with season setting processes and giving us opportunity is you got to know where to be and when, and you got and you better know where you are <laughs> when you are out there in certain uh, certain depths. Kind of walk us through the the depth restrictions and and when does it actually open this season for deep water lings? Uh, you know, for the the all depths, there's there's that two week section in in starting June first. I think it's June first through June sixteenth. I want to say. Uh, where we can go out and fish lingcod kind of wherever we want. Um, prior to that, it's a little goofy. Um, it, it starts out, it's opened out to, what is it, 50 fathoms. And then month of May rolls around and it closes and drops back down to 30 fathoms. And then mm-hmm. June opens up and it and it opens back up to deep water again. Um, it's, it's a little funky out there, has been the last couple of few years. Um, but yeah, it's, it's not too terrible. You know, the, the 50 fathom rule really gives us a lot of places where we can fish, you know, especially in Westport. It's, it, you have to go offshore quite a ways before it really starts getting deep. So with that, you know, we, we have a ton of leeway to find good fishing. Right. Um, but when it, when it opens up June 1st and, and we can fish, you know, deep, deep water, um, that's, that's pretty darn fun, pretty yeah. darn good fishing. Um, you know, as you've seen on, I'm sure halibut days when you can fish lingcod any depth, mm-hmm. like there's some, there's some deep water spots that are pretty oh, phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Yes, indeed. So what is your approach, Nick, to lingcod and bass fishing? So you're doing this combo trip where you're going to, you know, obviously the goal is to get your, your two lingcod and all of your bass. Do you start with lingcod or is it like, Hey, I'm going to go to a, you know, quote unquote lingcod spot. And if I see bass on my sonar, I'm dropping for bass. 
And then, like, as you walk through the season and that season rolls on, you know, is there a trend? That's kind of what I'm curious about. Mm. Is there a trend in those Lincoln moving around or those bass moving around? What, what do you what do you see? There, yeah, there's definitely trends in movements. Um, you know, honestly, from the start of the season through when we kind of shift over to, to just albacore full time and we're no longer doing doing any bottom fish, um, there's not any one approach. It kind of varies on a few different factors. Um, one factor is the tides and the current and uh, the wind. So, you know, we'll kind of look at what the wind is going to do. And if the wind is going to kick up in the afternoon, um, a lot of times we might try to get the rockfish out of the way first, just because it seems with the lighter gear and such, it can be a little harder to fish rockfish in the wind mm. versus when we, we kind of get heavier and, you know, bigger leads, bigger rods, um, or we can, we can tolerate a little bit more for laying. So, you know, if we're looking at 11 o'clock or something, the wind's going to kick up we might just go bang out the rockfish first or attempt to. Um, it, it also factors in kind of what we've been seeing. Um, we almost always go get flounder first because we, we fish live bait for lingcod. Mm-hmm. Um, so most of the time with very few exceptions, flounder is our first stop. So we'll get those. Um, I would say probably 75 to 80% of the time we go get, we go after our lingcod first. Um, partly because that's the biggest focal point. You know, people could, if we don't catch a full limit of one species, people would rather catch all their lingcod than, Mm -hmm. you know, come up a few short on the, on the rockfish. That's, That's usually not an issue. Um, but, uh, yeah, and then it, it does, it depends on kind of what we've been seeing, you know, when, when we really get going and start running a bunch of trips, um, you know, the lingcod for whatever reason might be getting tough and we might need to put more time into that. So we'll really focus on that first, or maybe we know that, you know, okay, th- this area where we've been fishing lingcod, the rockfish have actually been biting really good. So it kind of gives us that, that leeway of like, yeah, if we see them on a sonar, we're just going to switch over and, and bang them out. Sure. Um, but for the most part, I, I personally, I really try to, I, I try to leave the dock with a plan and I try to stick to that plan unless, you know, something that I see out there is just screaming at me like, Hey, you gotta, you gotta switch things up here. Um, but yeah, there's no, there's no one, one pure answer to that. I'm afraid it, it really just kind of depends on what we've been seeing and what the fish have been, been showing us. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little uh, techniques and setups for say lingcod and bass in shallow water presentation and opportunity. And then when you switch to that deeper water opportunity in June, is there uh, much difference in what you're presenting in year selection in, in actual, you know, what's at the end of the hook? Yeah, so so for our inshore trips for lingcod, especially, it's it's all ninety nine percent of the time it's live flounder. Um, sometimes early season, March and into early April, the flounder can be tough to get. Um, those those fish tend to kind of migrate around to various depths. I think more than anything, um, like during the winter. So sometimes when we get going, the, the flounder the flounder can be tough. So we'll bring herring just in case. Um, we haven't had that issue yet this year, but uh, you know it, it's always kind of on the back of our minds early season. Are we going to be able to get all our flounder or enough flounder to make it happen? Um, but for our, our standard setup, we run just a fifty pound braid to a to a dual lock basically. Um, then we run a like eighteen to twenty inch slider rig tied on like one hundred and fifty pound mono. Mm-hmm. Um, lead goes on the slider between two swivels, so it can kind of slide up and down. Sometimes we'll use a 
we'll use a, put the lead on the slider with a little uh, light mono, like a 12 or 15 pound mono, just to kind of act as a breakaway. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of times that doesn't work to be honest with you. <laughs> like it just seems like one out of 20 times you snag up on the bottom, that breakaway will actually break off and you'll save your whole setup. Right. But, uh, and then off of that, we just run a standard two hook, you know, uh, leader. We, we tend to tie our own most of the time these days, um, using anywhere from like eight aught to 12 aught, um, either like Gami octopus hooks or I, don't, I know last year we used some, uh, they're called their mustad beak, beak hooks. Mm. Uh, it was kind of my, my first time messing with those. And mainly it was because we were having a hard time finding other options. I think sure. with the supply issues yeah, and stuff, yeah. mm-hmm. um, I've kind of, and I kind of learned during that, I like to run that bigger hook. I like those 10 aughts, even 12 aughts. Um, they just seem to, they just seem to find, find a purchase a little more often, especially when you're fishing live bait. And, you know, a lot of times those fish don't get hooked or, or not very well. But, uh, when we, when we shift over, um, we don't do a lot different in the, in our deeper water trips. Honestly, we, we used to do a lot of pipe jigging, which is very effective out in that deep water. Um, nowhere near as effective inshore, you know, for whatever reason, my mm-hmm. guess is when you're out in four or 500 feet of water at that depth, you know, it's dark. I, I think anything that just moves and makes a, a ruckus is, is food. So they just pounce on it. You know, they're not right. super picky, right. but, uh, we, we kind of shifted over the last few years to doing a lot of flounder live flounder fishing, um, mm-hmm. in those same scenarios and less, less pipe jigging, um, partly because it can be extremely effective. Every bit is effective as inshore, but also because it's pretty easy to do. You know, you guys, I'm sure have done a lot of pipe jigging and, and that'll wear somebody out really quickly. It does. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. So when you're, you know, when you're charter fishing and you, and you have crews of just all sorts of families and maybe people that don't fish as much and whatever, uh, having techniques that are pretty simple can, uh, can make things a lot easier. So, so having that flounder where we can, just drop it down to the bottom. And especially if like, if we have kids or something, we can just mm-hmm. drop it down to the bottom and, and put it in a rod holder, you yeah. know, and they can, they're still fishing. They're still catching fish, but you know, they're not just absolutely wearing themselves out and yeah. put those pipe jigs. The second you stop moving them around, you're, you're basically just kind of wasting your time. Yeah. So yep. <clears throat> makes things a lot easier. Mm-hmm. And how are you hooking those flounder? It's a two single hook rig. And is the, is the leader also 150 pound? And then how do you put the hooks into those, into those flounders? Yeah. So we, usually I think our leaders are, we have big spools. I think they're 80, what we've been tying on the last few years. Um, you know, and I think we all kind of do it a little div- differently. My, my favorite way is I take that bottom hook and I, I run it in the, to the flounders mouth and I poke it out the gill plate and I pull it down. And then I take that top hook and I run it right through the jaw, just pin there pin the jaw shut. Mm. And at that point I'll take that second hook that's ran through the gill plate and just dangling. And I'll just kind of stretch it down, you know, depending on the size of the flounder and and the spread I have between those two hooks and just kind of get it, get it fairly, fairly taut and fairly straight. And then just kind of right through the side, you know, like you would on a, like on a cut plug herring or something. So it's just kind of sticking out the side. Mm -hmm. Um, I like to do it that way because I, I feel that we lose less flounder. Like if we get bit or if we maybe drag it on the bottom or something with that, that hook going through the gill plate and that line going through there, it really seems to help keep them on there. You know, you might bring them up and they're, they're mangled or they're, they're kind of hanging funny and you just got to readjust it, but they don't fall off, which is right. pretty nice. Yeah, yeah, it's a good point. I like that. Hey, so the, uh, the segment before getting you on, Nick, we, uh, we had our uh, chef, Jeff Maxfield, who's phenomenal 
at cooking all fish, fowl, and game. And uh, you're out there in the water a lot, getting all season long, all the different opportunities you have. But when it comes to lingcod, what might be like, I don't know, one of your favorite go-tos or a simple recipe? What's your favorite way to do up lingcod? Oh, man, that's, that's a tough one. Lingcod is my absolute favorite fish right? to eat up here. Absolute favorite. Um, you know, when I'm at home, I like to just take fillets and, and pan fry one and, you know, some blackened seasoning or something. Yeah. Um, I eat a lot of it just on my own for lunch or something. But uh, one that we do a lot down in Westport is a crew because we'll take a crew fish or two, you know, pretty regularly. Mm-hmm. And, and we all we all kind of contribute and, and cook dinner. But it's pretty simple. We'll just take some, uh, some mayonnaise, uh, a bunch of uh, Parmesan, mix it together, maybe throw in some, some garlic powder onion powder you know whatever spices and then we just layer that layer that on the top of the 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 fillets and then top that with a little panko and Mm. just bake it just like that yeah oh Oh, man it's it's phenomenal we do that sometimes three days a week (laughs) 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 yep yep absolutely well hey uh really want to give you thanks for uh, taking some time to jump on here with us tonight and uh, get the information out there for the folks so if you guys have openings and uh, folks want to jump on board get out there on the ocean go after some some bass some bottom fish lingcod what have you either in in near shore or the deep water opportunities best way for them to get a hold of you and hopefully jump on your boat with you um, yeah, so uh, allwashingtonfishing.com uh, is the website, or you can go to the All Rivers and Saltwater Charters Facebook page. Um, Mark and Mary Coleman own the business, mm-hmm. and Mary, she, she does all the bookings and all the schedulings and stuff. So anybody that, that wants to hop on with, with me specifically, all they got to do is send her a message through the website, send her a message on, on Facebook or call her. The phone numbers are on there. And uh, she's she's phenomenal at, at, at doing what she does. I, I don't know how she does it. She, she keeps the business going. <laughs> she's a busy lady. Oh, yeah. She really is. Yes. But, yeah, all you got to do is just say you want to go with Captain Nick, right. and she can make that happen. Um you know, I get a lot of emails and, and stuff on, on Facebook and Instagram, and, and I'm more than happy to answer questions for people, you know, help facilitate any of that. Uh, but the actual booking part of it does go through Mary. Um, and then, you know, I just drive the boat. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> awesome, Nick. Well, you're doing a great job. So uh, here, nothing but good things about you. I look forward to running into you down there on the dock. And uh, who knows, maybe we'll jump on the boat and spend a day on the water with you. That'd be a good time. But anyway, yeah, for sure. Yeah, Captain Nick Clayton, appreciate you taking time this evening. Uh, good good to have you on, and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get back with you soon. Right on. Thanks, guys. Yeah, yep. tie lines, brother. All right. righty. <clears throat> well, a little insight as to what goes on out there in the ocean, Tommy. Not mm-hmm. that it's uh, unfamiliar to you and uh, to us as well. But, you know, um, can't go wrong jumping on board with the Coleman's. No, I mean any other. They've got it so dialed. Their captains um, are just you know some of the best in the industry out there. Yeah, and when the weather allows, they're all mm-hmm. out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you have an interest in getting on with uh, with them and and taking advantage of all the different seasons they offer, uh, make sure you get a hold of uh, All River Saltwater Charters and uh, get booked, and you'll get to talk to the lovely Mary herself mm-hmm. and get yeah. on board. Right. Uh, okay. We're not done yet. We have a few things we want to get through before we close out the show here, Tommy. Got some numbers coming out of the Grays Harbor Coho opportunities that uh, are the season's getting formed and the meetings are happening with North of Falcon. And ultimately, this particular area, this region, some of this decision-making process may fall on the the, uh, shoulders of the commission. And where are they going to weigh in and how will they 
allow WDFW to craft this season? Based on what? Oh, the science. Right. Let's follow the science and see where we end up. That and a little bit more on Ansley's uh, budget, what made it in, what got vetoed, some interesting information coming out of the governor's office, and um, a few other things to tidy up. Don't go anywhere. A couple-minute break. We'll be back here to close out the show right here Fish on Northwest. Today, the need for quality private security services is at an all-time high. Contract Security Service provides day-to-day -day peace of mind as they protect people and property. Here at Phoenix, we provide service for multiple state and federal contracts with services ranging from uniform, patrol, alarm monitoring, canine detection, executive protection, as well as investigative work. Phoenix client management models are built on understanding our clients' security needs and responding with a tailored program that is best fit for them. Phoenix provides excellent customer service through well-trained, highly motivated security professionals. Recruiting highly qualified officers is the first step in building a strong team. Currently, we are comprised of 70% prior law enforcement and military veterans. If you are prior military or law enforcement, go to www.phoenixprotectivecorps.com and apply today. Welcome back, Fish on Northwest. Tommy, we are ready to wind this thing down here. Mm -hmm. But before we do that. What's that? I said, but before oh, we do that. Oh, before we get there. Yeah, we got some, uh, we got some information to get through here. Uh, so if you have taken the time, maybe you haven't. Now, one thing I found that's very simple. All these meetings going on with North of Falcon Process, whether it's Puget Sound Region, Columbia River, Grays Harbor, North Falcon 1, North Falcon 2, you could literally Google WDFW North of Falcon meetings on YouTube, mm -hmm. and every one of them that they have put out there comes up. I missed the meeting last night because I got home too late and I was finalizing show content, and uh, I pulled it up this morning, got a cup of coffee, was kind of just... You know, I just Googled that, found the Grays Harbor region meeting, mm -hmm. popped that on, listened to, I, I kind of fast forward through the intro because it's the same stuff every time. But you get to the meat and potatoes of it, they start putting up the graphs, they start putting up the charts, they start showing you the numbers and the preseason forecast models. And now they're starting to drop that information into certain model plans, which kick out numbers and co coefficients and things where, mm -hmm. where are we going to end up if we go you know, conduct this type of fishery from, from this date to this date, this, this bag limit, what does that do? What's our, what's our impact to the escapement uh, numbers that we need, right? Right. And that's really what it comes down to. When they're managing these fisheries, again, guys, they manage them for the wild component of any fish strain, whether we're talking Chinook and mm -hmm. the harbor region or out on the coast or Puget Sound or Coho or even Chum. Pink salmon, believe it or not. I mean, they're all mm -hmm. based on the wild fish component and meaning escapement to ensure that there's enough fish hitting the gravel. Right. So this year is, uh, we've talked about it. The number of coho coming back, it, it's relevant in the discussions in Puget Sound. It's relevant mm -hmm. in the discussions out on the coast. It's relevant in the discussions here in Grays Harbor. Um, and in Area 2, Westport, the ocean fishery, the abundance of coho that's going to be out there, we're talking 200,000 more than last year, and last year was just unbelievable. It was unbelievable. It was right? crazy. So we have a pretty wide open opportunity, so we think. We start kind of drilling down in this region out here, Grace Harbor, kind of off my backyard, 150,000 you know, coho coming back, and you're going, man, that's a lot of fish, right? Mm -hmm. But there's some constraining factors that they take into consideration when they start crafting these seasons and opportunity, bag limits, time on the water. Um, when you start calculating the time on the water for the Grays Harbor, you know, saltwater opportunity, right? Now, just 
outside of you know, just moving this way off of Westport, coming into the actual in harbor area, mm -hmm. you have that saltwater opportunity. Gets up into the main stem Chehalis, gets up into the tributaries, and there's a lot of them. These coho go throughout all of this part of the region, and the numbers for every each and every one of those count to some point. Mm -hmm. So they got to try to figure out if we have a wide open fishery in the saltwater, what does it do to the main stem opportunity? What does it do eventually to the tributaries? And do we hit an impact percentage on the wild fish escapement uh, need? And will we thereby fish it under escapement? Right? right. Yep. So it's really it's really kind of a numbers thing. Some will refer to it as paper fish, but it's really how they model the fishery to land where we want to land. Now, we as recreational uh, participants, we look at that number and go, my gosh, there is a ton of coho coming back. But it's not just a one and done. In other words, it's not just an in-season, this-season window that they look at to put the numbers on the paper to say, we get this opportunity to go after this many fish between these dates. They have to take into account some of the uh, the management um, information or script that has been written previous to this. In other words, like in Grays Harbor, there are certain clauses three of five. Like you have to meet escapement three mm -hmm. out of five years to have this type of fishery, right? right. Or you can you have to you have to meet escapement <coughs> three out of five years to have this big of impact on the fishery. Mm -hmm. And if you're not meeting escapement then it kind of puts you in the penalty box and you can only have a minimal like impact. So really what uh, this region falls under currently is no more than a 5%, 5% impact to the, uh, escapement to the escapement goal. Right. Now, if they need 35,000 fish and you project preseason modeling, you have 40,000 fish coming back. Um, you go, okay, that's a narrow margin. But uh, we can utilize that 5,000 fish above need, because that's what your 5% is, or your, four, you know, uh, 2,000 fish would be your 5%. But mm -hmm. if, you're, if you've got 5,000 fish to play with, you're probably not going to have a season on wild fish. But you're going to utilize those impacts on catch and release mortalities to go after your hatchery, hatchery fish, fish, right? right? Yep. Understand that, right? That's how that works. So it's not always that just because there's more wild fish than is called for, in your escapement, that we just get to go fish and kill all those fish. Those are impacts that we jeopardize by simply catching and releasing those fish. There's that mortality rate associated with it. If you have 40,000 fish, your impact on that in, in your 5% is going to be 2,000. So they're comfortable mm -hmm. with allowing us to go after our hatchery fish. Sure. We have 150,000 fish. Right. If they held us to a 5% impact above escapement, we're, we're going to jeopardize letting 100 thousand plus fish go on past right that we don't get to you know retain or utilize out of the resource how many of those hatchery fish are also mixed in with the wild fish that are just going to be they used to use the term foregone opportunity now mm -hmm. i can assure you that if wdfw decides nope we're going to stick to the letter of the law we're going to follow the management uh <laughs> process and we're going to not have more of an impact than five percent the co-managers are going to go well you guys are crazy because there's mm -hmm. way too many fish coming back, and we're gonna we're gonna catch them. We're gonna you. be we're gonna have our nets yeah. in the river seven days a week. Yep. Okay, there's those types of discussions that probably could happen. Mm -hmm. That's not where they're gonna go with it. But what I do like is that they put a lot of options on the table. They looked at that number and they go five percent. Yeah, I get it. It's where we should be based on previous years and all that. But look, let's face it. This is this is ridiculous to let this much this many fish go on. So they jocks, you know, 
move some numbers around, different months, different bag limits, different areas, mm -hmm. da 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 da. They have this model they're very confident in, and the numbers and the science would support it, okay? Mm -hmm. It could potentially push the impacts upwards of 18%. It sounds like a lot. Sounds like, oh man, are you sure you can do that? Putting that in perspective, it still allows for 38,000 fish above escapement need to comfortably hit the gravel. Right, and the escapement need is 40,000, 35,000. 35, so you're, again, so you're doubling it. You're still doubling the yeah. escapement on the gravel. Yep. You have such a bumper that you can conduct a fishery which has an 18% impact and still allow for additional 100 plus percent of escapement right. to then again reach the gravel. Yep. Sounds pretty reasonable, mm -hmm. right? What does that look like? It looks like um, <laughs> two fish bag limits for October in yep. certain areas, especially these tributaries. Now last year in comparison, we had, a, we had a lot of coho. We just talked about it. Like Westport was crazy. Yeah. A lot of wild fish. Um, and we had to weed through a lot of wild fish, like when we were even on the tributaries, to get our hatchery coho. Mm -hmm. And that's not always that's not always the best way of managing managing fisheries because these fish come in these rivers with a little shot of rain. They're moving up so quick. You catch them, you let them go. Their scales coming off them even in the river, mm -hmm. right? They're they're that fresh. So it's uh, it makes it sounds science to take a look at it and go. We can comfortably exceed the five percent. Uh, impact. We can bump that to an 18%. What does that look like? We can have a two fish limit, uh, uh, select or non-select. In other words, wide open. In other words, you'd see a regulation that might say release all Chinook. Mm -hmm. It tells me I can keep hatchery coho, wild <coughs> coho. Then we go into November. It might say uh, uh, retain one fish, uh, release all Chinook. In other words, I can keep a hatchery or a wild coho. Mm -hmm. But it's now down to a one fish because we don't want to we don't want to really, you know, drive that 38,000 fish buffer. We just don't want to right. consume that. We want to have a really wide margin for error. And that one there is, when you exceed your escapement by an additional 100%, that is a huge buffer, right? Right. And you would know by that time, right? Like in November, you would, you would know if you've met your escapement goal already, right? Well, uh, if the front edge of that run was so robust that, yeah, but that's mm -hmm. not necessarily what they always want to do either, right? Right, they want to wait. You want to get right. a good push in the front, a good push in the middle, and a good mm -hmm. push at the end, mm -hmm. because years down the road, that just sustains that fishery that much better. Sure. Because you don't exactly. have all early arriving fish, you don't have all really late arriving fish. Right. You want it spread out over a couple, few right. months, in right? In case something happens to any in one part of happens. that. Yeah. So the floods this last year, we may be paying for that two years from right. now, right? Right, right. So, uh, I guess the long and the short of it is pretty lucrative in October, maybe a one one fish in um, November. Probable, good probability, get to continue to fish in December. Now, again, last year we had agreed to fisheries through December, coho retention, hatchery only. Those were completely done away with, with the steelhead debacle that was. Right. We've asked yeah. the question going into it this year, does that mean... With steelhead in the unknown, are they going to close the fishery earlier? There's been no definitive answer on that as of yet. I got to think the encounter rates of wild steelhead in the month of December do not warrant closing down an entire fishery once again. I would like to see us get through October with a two fish, get into November with a one fish, hatchery or, or wild, get into December with retention of one hatchery coho, and you would have opportunity for one hatchery steelhead. And then uh, the steelhead fishery, more than likely, I'm assuming, will be closed again in January. And um, coho would be done at the end of December. But we have a really good opportunity going into it. 
early season especially. Mm -hmm. October could be fantastic. We've been, we were talking about that two fish limit that seems to elude us so often. Here's a great opportunity because okay. the numbers are so high. And, and there's really no reason why we shouldn't be able to, to fish on that run. Mm -hmm. But as you pointed out early on, this is going to come down to the commission. Correct. Right? So this proposal mm -hmm. for an 18% take, right, instead of a 5% take, that's got to go in front of the commission. And they have to go thumbs up, thumbs down. Yeah. So the onus is on staff to present sound science to say, here's where the numbers are at. We feel very strong that we can conduct these fisheries within these parameters. And we are going to not only meet escapement, we're going to exceed escapement by more than 100% additional on top of, right? Mm -hmm. Um, the commission, that is, that we currently <laughs> fall under, now they've already showed their hand in the bear hunting. Right. Okay? Yep. This is their first opportunity now going to the North of Falcon, where they got to start making some decisions on some of these models that these different groups are going to be bringing out of these meetings and uh, collectively coming to agreement on this particular model for this fishery and how we're going to conduct this fishery. They present that to the commission, and commission has to either, you know, buy off on it, believing the science produced by staff who are very good at their job and should be supported as such, uh, or blatant disregard and say, no, stick to the policies. So mm -hmm. the policy would drive you back to that 5% and a whole bunch of fish going upriver for no reason whatsoever other than a commission that can't see past their nose right. to understand that it's not always so cut and dry. Everything doesn't fall within you know, A to Z. There's outliers, there's certain years that these bumper crops of fish coming back. Mm -hmm. And we as citizens of Washington State and the co-managers deserve the opportunity to take advantage of that if it doesn't impact recovery. Right. Right? And their job, with, written within their job description, their bylaws and those rules that they follow is to maximize opportunity to yep. recreational harvest when deemed available and doesn't jeopardize recovery. Right. This is a yep. prime example. So we're going to see where this goes. If they balk at this and slam the door shut and we don't get this opportunity on a number of these fish, it really shows their hand now both in yeah, hunting and fishing. And fishing. Mm -hmm. Yep. And, and we kind of said it early on that, you know, just because they're talking about a bear hunt now doesn't mean they're going to come after the fisheries later. So yeah, um, it's going to be really telling with this one right here. Mm-hmm. Um, where they stand going forward. I agree. And if they can't support this, um, we've got a very tough road ahead. Yeah, because this to me seems like a pretty simple one. Right. Okay. Yep. And if they if they want to get uh, if they want to get recreational community uh, as far as fishing, kind of being, oh okay, maybe the commission's not completely doom and gloom and all evil. If they want to get a little bit of buy-in and, you know, maybe mm -hmm. they think we're going to support some of their decision-making process, there's a great opportunity for them to show that hand. But if they go the other way, boy, all bets are off, man. we yep. got a tough road ahead. I agree. So um, along with that, uh, Governor Inslee had the opportunity those last few weeks to walk through the budget. He's uh, vetoing certain, certain components of that. And there was mm -hmm. a number of things, you remember you and I talked about it, in his uh, $87 million ask initially, there's a number of things in there attributed to, um, uh, or it was $187 million ask, uh, for the yep. sports fishing and whatnot and, 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 and recovering things. So number of things in there, legislators wrote a number of those into the budget, mm -hmm. presented them in the budget to the governor, and he has the ability to either say yes or veto. Or veto. Yep. Yeah. So let's run down uh, a couple of those. So. 
Um, the first one was the, now remember, this is voluntary, uh, voluntary buyback of non-tribal gillnets. Correct. Um, on the Columbia. So to me, this one's kind of a red herring. Um, it's a $14.4 million budget item. And it doesn't apply to all the tribal gillnets. It's mm. just non-tribal. Non-tribal gillnets. And what's interesting in here is that it notes that this is to reduce the impacts of the gillnet fishery. But it was funny because one of the other line items in the budget was to place, um, you know, a third-party viewer onto the gillnets, gillnet boats mm -hmm. and gillnet fleet to mm -hmm. try to understand what their actual impact, impacts were to uh, wild fish, B-run steelhead, things of that nature. Right. And it kind of tells me <clears throat> that maybe they didn't really, they don't really know what the impacts are. They haven't documented them very well, but at the same time, they're going to go ahead and put this out there to try to remove a very small portion of the gillnets out of the Columbia River. Now, here's the thing that gets me, is that this, um, it only applies to a very small subset of, of fishermen, right? It's, it's yeah. only the commercial, it's mm -hmm. non-tribal. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a voluntary program, not required. And the other thing is, is that you've got a quota, okay? The gillnet, the gillnetters are given a quota of fish. Just because you have two less licenses or five less licenses, mm -hmm. uh, five less boats on the water, doesn't mean that their quota, you know, shrinks by that much. Correct. It's still the same. Right. And at the same time, you know, we've already had um, hatchery reductions as a result of not getting those hatchery fish off the spawning beds. So it makes me wonder, you know, even if there were gillnet um, boats reduced and gillnet licenses sold back, um, is that even going to do anything? And then the other thing is, if you do reduce the gillnet fleet enough to where they're not taking the hatchery fish out of the system, isn't that just fodder for the state or the commission to say, well, I guess you got to reduce hatchery runs even or more. Or fish groups. And, and, oh, by the way, you know, um, there's not enough fish to have a fishery, so mm -hmm. um, hope you guys like a reduced <laughs> season. And then the other thing that I look at when I look at this from a budget standpoint, $14.4 million, what happens when the gillnetters say... <clears throat> Oh, no. I'm not doing it. Yeah, I'm not. Well, I don't think that $4.4 million goes back into the bank account, right? It's so going to get distributed somehow. You bring up an in interesting point. I'm going to jump ahead to this other one, and you kind of had mentioned it. So Inslee vetoed the third-party scientific review. In other words, observers on board with commercial, non-tribal commercial gillnetters on the Columbia River, Chinook fisheries or what have you, impacts to, as you mentioned, B-run steelhead, which they don't know, <laughs> um, catch and release mortalities on wild fish that they cannot retain, revival boxes, the whole program. Truly, what is the number? How, what is the impact to these wild fish? And um, can we get some statistical data to support where this truly is, right? Mm -hmm. So that gets vetoed because they said there's not enough money in the budget to go ahead and allow this. Previously, excuses from WDFW and, and, and whatnot was that there was a there was a discrepancy in the insurance. Uh, persons being on board as observers, the insurance wasn't going to be suitable. And I'm thinking, they're a state employee. How do they not have insurance? That, right. Anyway, um, so we haven't had this, you know, we need a couple seasons in a row of these, these targeted gillnet fisheries going after Chinook, what the impacts are to the steelhead, which on the Columbia are in dire straits. <laughs> the last two seasons have been dismal and to levels of that exceed concerning. Mm -hmm. I mean, really some serious... Uh, things going on with our steelhead on the Columbia River and the upper tributaries where we're conducting these gillnet fisheries 
impacting on the steelhead while all your recreational opportunity upriver in your tributaries is closed to steelhead, right? So mm -hmm. the numbers are concerning. The impacts are concerning. We're not going to, we vetoed it, so we're not going to have observers available on board. But yeah, we're going to put $14.4 million into a program where it's a voluntary buyback. And I'm pretty sure the line of persons lining up to receive their checks to turn in their license in their gear is going to be extremely short. And that $14.4 million would be more suited to not, let's not worry about the buyback program right now. Let's get the statistical data and the science. Right that our commission is screaming for in all facets and say, mm -hmm. hey, let's put that money where the work can be done and not have the governor veto that out of there and truly right. drill down on what the impact of this commercial fishery is at certain times of the year when our runs are so depleted. And we're seeing a trend here. We okay, are so not only here. do we not want to understand the impact of the gillnet fishery, but the other line item that was also vetoed, vetoed. by the governor was to improve salmon population data analysis uh, and staffing D D WDFW to help with the North of Falcon process. Bring more data into that process so you can make really good sound decisions right. um, based on data, right? Yeah. Well, he vetoed that as well. Which I don't understand. It says the money is not available. And so and when we're talking about um, th this other one that was asked, you know, this 10-year look, right? Wanted to go from 2010 to 2020. Wanted to look at the impacts of Puget Sound. Wanted to look at the mortality rates on the ESA-listed Chinook, mm -hmm. uh, both tribal and uh, and recreational, and yep. the whole deal. It's like yeah. we really want to put a lens on this thing for a ten-year time frame, and what is the impact of the mortality rates on these ESA-listed Chinook? <coughs> Excuse me. That's one that I've asked for for a number of years, and they were like, "Well, we don't we don't have that information." Oddly enough, WDFW is responsible for producing that information. It's in other words, it's supposed to be generated each and every right. season. Right. So when I read that they don't have money in the budget to um, to uh, generate the report. Right. But they're closing seasons for it due to impacts. Based on impacts. Right. And uh, high mortality rates of catch and release. And it's like, well, then where are, you, where are you garnering the data from right. if you don't have the reports <laughs> and there's not enough money in the budget to generate the report of information that should be generated each and every season and they could collectively grab all 10 years and go, here you go, here's the average of impacts, here's the tribal contribution to ESA listed impacts, here's the recreational catch and release ESA uh, impacts. Th this just goes back and forth. The whole forth. thing's laughable, okay? It's I just mean, too many they, times. They've, they've got the data. When I, when I think of, hey, publish a report, why don't you hit that print to PDF button and <laughs> send me PDF. the Excel file right. that you have, right. okay? And I will, I will look through the data. Yeah, so you can read into this and understand that there are a certain number of items that the governor did veto. That's within his right, within his overall operating budget for the state. And this one is dialed down here on, you know, specific items, line items within fisheries management. I get all that. But this goes back and forth and contradicts itself on what is being approved. It's yeah. like fluff. The $14.4 million is right. fluff. It's like, look at the shiny object over here so you don't really see what is truly happening mm -hmm. uh, down here in the basement. Because well, Yeah. And you know the other thing? So we now have a commission that is saying... Oh, well, the data that you have, like in the case of the spring bear hunt, right? that's not good enough anymore. It's the same data we've been using for the past 10 years, mm -hmm. but now, today, it is no longer valid. So we need more data, right? 
And there, there are line items in this budget that are requesting more granular data, right. more detail, right. more information about our fisheries and how we make these decisions. And they're saying, nope, nope, we don't want it. We don't want to fund it. It's not even the most expensive line item, but we don't. We can't do that. There's no money. That that tells you a lot, right? Yep. You gotta as you start lumping them all together, then it starts painting a picture. Yep. So kind of concerning. Anyway, uh, lots of uh, lots of good information covered there, my friend. So uh, sorry to be the bearers of bad news. Uh, it's just some of the things going on, and it's got our heads spinning. We're trying to figure it all out, make sense of it. Look, we're just looking for you know sound decision making science-based decision-making, yep. presenting information to the commission, and they can buy in to the actual science that they ask for, and hopefully they make decisions in the right regard based on that science, because if they don't, they're undermining the staff that provides the science. Yep. They're telling these uh, field biologists and persons that do the work, boots on the ground, you're not providing us with uh, information that we, we don't believe you. Mm -hmm. basically is what they're saying so yeah all right buddy uh good stuff we are uh we're about there we're about at the end so um appreciate everybody hanging on here tonight um got any questions as always hit us up via facebook and or youtube messenger on each one we often uh, find time to get back um correspond to uh, your requests and questions and and enjoy that dialogue as much as uh we can we can get to it uh any final thoughts no, sir. <laughs> I hope my neck feels better. I got to straighten this thing out. Yeah, yeah. You need to get uh, need to be, get back in that gym. You're looking a little uh, spelty there. So, <laughs> too anyway, skinny. <laughs> yeah, too skinny. Too skinny. Tommy says no one. Uh, all right. Uh, appreciate it. Had a great time tonight. Good show. Nice job, Tommy. And uh, we are back here next Thursday, six p.m. Six p.m. Be the fourteenth, and we are one day away from the uh, from the turkey opener. So, get ready for that. 15th. Um, more to cover in that regard. Lots more info to get to in the weeks to come. Spring is here and lots of opportunity out there. We're going to bring it to you each and every week right here out of the studio. Appreciate uh, everybody tuning in tonight. Have a great week. We'll see you next Thursday right here, Fish on Northwest. Hey, thanks for joining us here on the Fish on Northwest weekly podcast. I want to remind everyone that you can catch our weekly live stream show on our Facebook page and of course our YouTube channel every Thursday evening at 6 p.m. West Coast time. You'll get our insightful in-studio interviews, our extremely detailed how-to segments in the bait lab, the infield segments we bring to you when we're on the water or in the woods, and of course, our amazing cooking recipes in the kitchen with co-host Sherry England and chef Jeff Maxfield. Give us a follow on our Facebook page at Fish Hunt Northwest. Also subscribe to our YouTube channel at Fish Hunt NW. Find us on Twitter and Instagram. And finally, go to our webpage at www.fishhuntnw.com for all the latest and greatest info. Join us each week here on our podcast. Join us each week at our live production. Have a great week, everybody. We'll see you soon. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.